Hello, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here. The issue of identity has been a central and contentious one uh, since the, the very beginning when the Spanish arrived in Latin America and began to impose a socioeconomic order uh, composed of Europeans, uh, Latin Americans of European descent, indigenous people, mestizos, and uh, later uh, black Africans uh, who were brought over as slaves and much later uh, immigrants from farther parts of Europe, the Chinese, the Middle East, and so on. The mix of those people has produced Latin America's rich culture, but it has also produced prejudices and complexes. And as the Venezuelan intellectual Carlos Rangel uh, pointed out in his classic book on the Latin Americans, from the very beginning, the Europeans projected an idealized and wholly unrealistic image of uh, the Latin Americans before they were uh, apparently corrupted by European culture. This, of course, was mostly a reflection of uh, Europeans' own Eurocentric concerns. Thus, the mythical noble savage uh, was born, and as time passed, the idealized version of the authentic and the good Latin American uh, evolved into, or rather uh, would be vindicated by, uh, the good revolutionary, worthy of support and sympathy uh, from outsiders, particularly uh, enlightened Europeans and Americans. Latin American political leaders, especially demagogues of the left and of the right, are guilty also in appealing in some way to that uh, mythology uh, when justifying nationalistic, uh, so-called anti-imperialistic, and even bellicose policies. The book uh, we are featuring today, Latin Americans and the West, uh, is very much in the tradition of Carlos Rangel's classic because it states one large truth that for whatever reason is forgotten uh, too often by some Latin Americans and many uh, outsiders, especially in the United States and, and in Europe, and that is that Latin America is culturally a part of the West. It is a part of the poor West. Carlos Alberto Montaner explains in his book how all of the major cultural institutions, the language, the religion, uh, the political systems, intellectual traditions, literature, arts, sports, and so on, uh, are of Western origin and are shared by virtually all Latin Americans with the exception of a very uh, small uh, minority. Understanding this central fact uh, can help us, both Latin Americans and non-Latins, better understand political developments in the region, the mindset of Latin Americans, and why some countries progress at certain times and others not. Hopefully, uh, the book will also help European and American journalists eliminate what I consider to be a, a double standard that is often uh, present when reporting about Latin America. Too often, violations of basic liberties and civil rights in the region are downplayed by a reporter's evident view of Latin Americans as somehow belonging to an alien culture where such abuses that would outrage the same reporter were they to occur in his own country are somehow tolerated. Journalists also often seem to be buying into the myth of the noble savage. But the book is much more interesting than just a, a, a political uh, insight into the region 
and I will let uh, Carlos Alberto uh, talk about it in his own words. Today we're going to do something a little bit different than uh, having him give a talk followed by a comment. Instead, what we'll do is uh, initiate the discussion from the very beginning, and I will be uh, asking uh, some questions to both Carlos Alberto and Álvaro uh, in order to get to what I think are the, the main points, or hopefully the main points of, of the book. Uh, Álvaro will have a few comments also in general about the book, and then we will open it up uh, to a, a general discussion. So let me, let me introduce both of our speakers at, at the same time. Carlos Alberto Montaner is uh, one of the most well-recognized uh, writers in the Spanish language. Perhaps he is the most well-read uh, writer in the Spanish language. He is the author of numerous books, uh, way too many to mention. I'll mention one that he co-wrote with Alvaro Vargas Llosa, Guide to the Perfect Latin American Idiot. Uh, some of his books like that one and the one that we're featuring today have been translated into English. Many of them uh, have not. He writes a regular column that appears all over Latin America and Spain. He is of Cuban origin, exiled uh, for many, many years now, and uh, is also, since the early 19, uh, since the early 90s, uh, the vice president of the Liberal International. Uh, Alvaro Vargas Llosa is a senior fellow at the Independent Institute, also the author of numerous books including the Guide to the Perfect Latin America and Liberty for Latin America. He is uh, one of the people that I consider the most important in the liberty movement in Latin America. If I had to list the top five people, Álvaro would be on that list. So, of course, uh, would be Carlos Alberto Montaner. Uh, both are tireless in their advocacy for a modern vision of Latin America. They travel a lot, they write a lot, they're, they're constantly uh, all over the region and in the media and doing academic work. They're good friends personally and uh, two of the people I most admire in this area and it's always good to have that uh, combination. I welcome them both back to the Cato Institute. Please help me welcome them. So let us, let us begin. Uh, Carlos Alberto, in a nutshell, uh, what is your book about and why did you write it? Well, uh, I wrote uh, the book, in, of course, in Spanish a few years ago after participating in a, in a seminar with Huntington where he expressed his idea that uh, Latin America were not part of the Western world. That was some kind of sub-civilization. That was the word that he he used. And I understand he, that mistake because many Latin Americans think more or less the same thing. They they try to convince themselves that they are different than than the rest of the. Uh, uh, American uh, world, I mean the American as, uh, as both continents. And it is a very important thing because identity makes you act in some way. 
if you perceive yourself as part of a, a particular group, you will act as, as that. If you perceive yourself as something different, you will try to, or you will act in a different way. And for many years, in the 20th century, we listened many politicians and writers that tried to prove that Latin Americans were different from the rest, uh, different than the Europeans, different than the rest of the uh, inhabitants of, the, of this continent. And I think that's a very dangerous mistake because this may be one of the reasons of the failures of Latin Americans. The idea that you should try to find a different path for development, a different uh, way to, to govern instead of doing what the Europeans do, you doing what the um, Americans or Canadians uh, do, they don't try to find a third way. They don't try to, to be, uh, they don't try to differentiate themselves from their roots. And this was the, the, the main idea behind the, the writing of the, of the book. Also, when the book was translated to English, I think this could help the Anglo-Americans, the Americans from, that are not Hispanics, basically, to understand a group that is, right now is 15% of the population, but in the year 2050 will be the biggest ethnic group in the country, in the United States, will be even bigger than what they call here the, the white uh, uh, Anglo-Americans. Uh, in 2050, according to the census, to the Bureau of, of uh, Census, it will be 100 million Latin Americans in, or, or Hispanics in this country. And I think it's a good idea to try to understand where these people come from. And doing that learning from where they come from and what their roots are, the Americans will understand their own roots also because we all participate in the same and we try, we, we, use, we usually forget this, we forget our classical roots, our Romans, our uh, Greece uh, roots, and now with uh, the people that, uh, some Americans that do not have any idea of what the Hispanic worlds come from, when they read this book in English, they start understanding their own roots. Because we tend to forget in the, in the type of education that we receive right now, that we give right now, they forget the the classical roots of, of this society, which is something that is, I think, is also tragic. Well, it sounds like you also have a bit of optimism, though, if indeed the, the Latin American culture is Western culture, which by and large has been a successful one, then uh, 
it, it seems like this at bottom is an optimistic book, yet it would be very easy to look at the region and uh, conclude the opposite, to have a different uh, outlook. Uh, Spain is, of course, uh, uh, part of the Western world, and in the West there are various traditions. Latin America has clearly most been influenced by Spain in the Western uh, world, and yet what we've seen in Spain in the last 30 or so years is a success story uh, of a country that came out of authoritarianism and a closed economy and, and so on into a modern uh, dynamic society. What are the lessons for Latin America, if anything, from that? Well, that, that um, there is no permanent destiny for any uh, nation in, in the world. I mean, the same way that Spain became uh, first war, first world um, nation, Latin America could also. Uh, Chile is doing. Somehow, Chile is becoming one a nation of the first world with a, a really important uh, level of uh, development. And probably Peru is in the same in the same path. I don't know if Alvaro is uh, optimist enough to to believe that, but I think Peru is doing what Chile, Chileans did in the uh, last uh, 10 years or 20 years, and, and they are becoming more and more uh, modern countries in the, in the sense of, uh, of what Spain is a modern country. And that's uh, is a lesson. It's a lesson. It's a very contradictory because... If you read the newspapers right now, what you will see is a lot of news about Chavez and about Evo Morales and about the uh, socialism of the 21st century, which is in the other way. It's exactly uh, in, the, in the other way. They are trying to get apart from the Western world. They are trying to, to return to the all traditions of uh, populism in the worst uh, sense of the of the word, but at the same time we have countries like Chile now, like uh, Peru, and probably in the future we will see more examples of of uh, some countries that uh, that choose the um, the way of uh, progress and and uh, and prosperity that are really part of the Western tradition. Does Latin America have it uh, more difficult, though, than, <clears throat> than Spain in a, in a transition to modernity? I think it was the writer uh, Claudio Vélez who said that uh, Latin America was unlucky to be con conquered by Spain just at the time that uh, Spain was crushing the medieval institutions of, uh, that, that actually uh, served as fonts of liberty in much of the rest of Europe at the time and centralizing authority, and thus those institutions weren't transferred to Latin America at that time. Rather, the, the authoritarian centralizing tradition uh, was. And I wonder if that's, uh, if that's uh, making it more difficult <coughs> for Latin America. I also uh, would like your opinion on 
the relationship between Latin Americans and the, and the Spanish. How do they view uh, each other? And in Europe, what are the other uh, most important influences culturally? Is it, for example, France? Uh, well, uh, if you are well informed in Latin America, you know that uh, all your roots uh, comes from basically from from Spain, not just the language, the institutions, the the way you built the cities, the way you you behave is a, in, in a very extended way. Is that comes from from Spain? Even though that you can you, you may have the opinion that that is like uh, Carla Bailey said in the in the past that this was a disgrace that Latin America comes exactly from that from that origin. But that's the uh, our that's our tradition. That's our motherland. Somehow, now we have living. For example, in Madrid, ten percent of the population of Madrid is from Ecuador and Colombia. We have an enormous uh, group of uh, immigrants, and. Uh, we are in the middle of a crisis right now, and the uh, immigration stop. Some, well, at least, the immigration for Latin American stop. But the trend is that most, I mean, many Latin Americans goes to 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 Spain to live and to try to to find a better a better way. Spain is right now the second. Um, Source of uh, remesas. How you said the remesas? Remittances. Remittances. Remittances for Latin America. The third one is Japón. Japón. See, it's very, very curious. And because of Peru, that's the reason. That's the reason. And Brazil. And The other, the other strong influence, of course, is France. In many aspects, in the, the history of ideas, in, the, in, in, in many sense, in art, in literature. Uh, of course, France is, uh, at least was, a great influence in the past. I think in the last 50 years, this has diminished a lot. There is no... Any French writer that really has a, a strong, made a strong impression in Latin America right now. There's no French painters that, uh, but up to 50 years ago, that was uh, absolutely different. Is Europe or the United States more important culturally to? to oh, United States, United States, of course. Culturally, culturally, United culturally States in well. many, many. I mean, United States is a, is a, a dominant. Uh, uh, country in Europe and in Latin America and in every, every place. You talk about the... I discovered today that Argentinians start playing baseball. That's the... <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, well, if you bring up sports, you, you know, you, you talk about sports in, in, uh, in the book as well. Uh, and uh, Argentina, of course, has distinguish itself as, a, as a, one of the great soccer powers in the world, which, of course, was introduced there by the British. Uh, 
somehow uh, Latin Americans have distinguished themselves. They've excelled in literature, music, painting, the arts, sports, and not so much in, in some other fields like science and uh, politics. Why do you su suppose that is? Well, before I published this book, I published another book that was uh, Las Raíces Torcidas de América Latina. And those twisted roots were precisely that trend of Hispanic uh, culture that uh, somehow uh, reject science and uh, the scientific... Uh, uh, influence and the scientific, uh, the best scientific schools. Why this happened in Spain? Well, there are many explanations. One is uh, religious, which is, I think, uh, very, very important. Uh, probably the type of um, the ex, ¿cómo se dice? expulsion, the ex, uh, expulsion, the expulsion of the Jews in in the uh, 15th century was a tragedy for for the culture in, in a way. The expulsion of the Arabs in the 16th century also uh, was not good for for the development of the science in, in Spain and a very authoritarian tradition of centralized uh, government and the Catholic uh, some. Catholic uh, mentality, I think, uh, was part of the of the problem, and that affects, of course, the the conquest of uh, Latin America and the way that we behave, the the world, the, the way that we perceive the world. We were given lessons, in, for example, in the University of Havana until the, the beginning of the 19th century, we were trying to, to teach at the university in Latin, and we use the, um, all the basically medieval explanations of uh, history and, and science, and, and this has a, a strong cost in the, in the mentality of the people. I mean, you if if you use that those methods of, of of teaching and that perception of the of the reality that comes from from medieval times, of course, this would not harbor a bolder mentality. Is that changing at all, though? I mean, that was a long time ago, and there is such a thing as cultural change as well. Uh, what cultural change do you see in the region? No, no. I think uh, there is a, a lot of, of of change, of course, so, and and a lot of confusion, both at the same at the same time. This is this is not part of this book because this is uh, this is what we wrote uh, with Alvaro and, and Plinio in other books. But one of the of the of the worst thing that happens in our culture in Latin America is that we became the victims of everyone, the victims of Spain, the victims of Europe, the victims of the United States. I mean, we didn't take the, our responsibility or the responsibility in our hands. We, we choose to blame others 
for our responsibilities, and that was also a wrong way to understand and to try to solve the the problems. This, I think, is changing in, in many in many people. But we have a, a, constantly we have a, a, a permanent tension in Latin America between the forces of modernity and the forces of the, of people that are trying to find. Uh, the uh, trying to blame other other countries of our uh, faults and our problems, and until we solve this, until we have uh, ninety percent of the people, or eighty or ninety percent of the people that they understand how the countries uh, develop and how they fail, will be very difficult to to get rid of of the of the past. Somebody might object to your book uh, by pointing out uh, countries like Guatemala, Bolivia, uh, parts of Peru that have a strong indigenous culture, or at least a big indigenous uh, influence. Surely that has played a role in forming culture there. How do you? Uh, oh no, that's that? that's true. I mean, Latin America is a very heterogeneous uh, world where you have. Uh, Basically, European societies like the Argentinians, uh, mixtures, uh, uh, combination of uh, Africans and Europeans like the Caribbeans, and uh, and also some countries that are, in, in the case of Bolivia, in the case of Bolivia, we have two countries, at least two countries, the, or probably three. In the case of Guatemala, is the same thing, and. It's very difficult because uh, what you are saying to the Indians in Guatemala or, or in Bolivia is, well, if you want to develop, if you want to believe, if you want to live like a Dutch or like a Italian, you have to produce like a Dutch or like Italian. You cannot have both ways. You cannot live like a Maya and pretend to 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 consume like a German. Because it's impossible, and if you are going to produce, I mean, if you if you want to consume like a German, you have to produce like a German, and then you have to forget about your your roots because of your and the, the way you behave in your own culture because it's 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 not possible to have both ways, and this is not a very agreeable conversation in Latin America, in some places in Latin America, because uh, you, it's very easy to, to, to be accused of uh, imperialistic or be accused of uh, insensibility or whatever, but this is something that is absolutely true. I, I think I visit all Latin America probably 10 times, and when you visit one of those very pre-Columbian, that's the word, the word pre-Columbian uh, towns where they are acting and living like uh, in the 15th century or, or in the 16th century. It is not just, it is not morally justified to say, well, you have to change the way you live. You can understand that. But at the same time, it is unjust to blame the rest of the world because they do not have 
the blessings of the modernity or the like the uh, a developed developed country, because it, 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 there is a irreconcilable. I don't know how to say it. Irreconcilable uh, difference between the way you you live and the way you produce and and your expectations. Some of our uh, Indian friends, however, would say that there is such a thing as uh, modernization without westernization. Uh, but uh, we'll leave we'll leave that aside because I think that's a rich uh, debate within the liberal uh, community. You do you mention anything about uh, popular culture in in your book? Maybe journalism. Uh, I know that Alvaro has talked about uh, telenovelas before, and maybe I'll ask him to to say his theory about telenovelas, which I think is interesting. But uh, Carlos Alberto, what do you have to say? about popular culture? Well, that's the, probably the most, uh, <laughs> most well-known part of our culture. When I saw in Russia people seeing the telenovelas, the Latin American soap operas, the, so, the Latin American soap operas, I was, that was amazing. But when I saw in Japan, in Japan also, El, el Derecho de Nacer, I don't know how to say that in English. Uh, el, that was a very popular, uh, el del verso, exactly, it was a very popular story that was uh, first made for radio in Cuba in the 40s and the 50s and then from, yes, very old. And then on TV and then, but when you see that in Russia and in, in Poland, people crying, with uh, this uh, soap opera, he said, well, there is something really international uh, that uh, relate practically all, all part of the world. And this is one of the, of the things that uh, Latin Americans gave to the, to the, to the world in this popular, popular art, the, the soap opera, yes. <laughs> I don't know. You want to say something about your... Sure. The theory that um, you talk about. Yeah, and, and, and thank you for hosting us, uh, Ian, and, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Yeah, th this is, I think, a, a really fascinating aspect of Latin American popular culture. And I think it reflects part of our, our, our basic flaws. Um, I, I've uh, profited from my conversations over the years uh, with Ibsen Martinez, who's a, a very well-known uh, Venezuelan writer and journalist, who is actually writing a book about uh, populism and soap operas, the, the, uh, the notion that uh, soap operas in Latin America are vehicles through which populist ideas are spread and, and contaminate the political conversation. Uh, sometimes very consciously and deliberately, and sometimes uh, accidentally. But uh, I, I think that promises to be a, a spectacular book. I hope Cato uh, translates it, uh, because it, it's a book that needs to be uh, uh, read in English, too. Um, well, the, the, the idea is that if, if you look at the, at the storylines of most soap operas in Latin America, they are uh, vehicles for spreading notions such as the fact that wealth, for instance, is a given. It's something that's not continuously created. It's not a, a, a cumulative process over time. 
uh, but a given, something that somehow is, is there for people to take it. Uh, and that's why most of these um, stories are built around a fight, a tension over a given uh, wealth. Uh, who are the protagonists? Who are the heroes and heroines of, of these stories? People who are usually fighting over uh, uh, an estate that somebody is taking away from them uh, and that belongs to them uh, uh, by birthright or, or maybe some other uh, uh, mystical or metaphysical uh, condition. But um, essentially what you see is, is a struggle for a wealth that's already there and that somebody has taken away from somebody else. Um, you also have uh, a very interesting view of, of what authority is. Uh, it's, it's, it's both a validation of the kind of authority that is Latin American authority, in other words, uh, vertical, authoritarian, uh, not subject to uh, a lot of scrutiny, uh, but also a questioning of that authority. Uh, it's, it's not unusual to see uh, corrupt politicians, corrupt judges, uh, corrupt uh, authoritative figures in, in, in Latin American soap operas. In fact, uh, Ibsen Martinez himself, uh, I don't know if you know this story, but it's a, it's a very interesting story, uh, thinks he played uh, a role, of which, of course, he's now ashamed and has, has said so publicly, in bringing about the Chavez uh, rise to power, the Chavez phenomenon. Uh, he authored uh, a very famous uh, telenovela, soap opera, in the 1990s that, that some of our Venezuelan friends will, will remember well, Por Estas Calles. Um, it was, it was uh, a soap opera that was very much influenced by the mood at the time, which was one of uh, profound skepticism with with uh, institutions and authority. Everybody uh, had had a, a great mistrust of of anything that smacked of of institutional authority, and so uh, everything was questioned: the constitution, judges, policemen, politicians, and anybody who represented some kind of authority in that society was heavily questioned in that in that soap opera. Uh, of course, at the time, I am sure that was seen as a very fresh. Uh, uh, look at, 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 at the basic institutions of society as a way of spurring uh, debate throughout society. But uh, in hindsight, uh, Ibsen thinks that it contributed to delegitimizing the idea of the republic, the idea of these values and institutions that make up uh, the republic, the Latin American republic, which is, of course, a legacy uh, of, 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 of a very profound Western roots. Uh, and insofar as it did that, it created the conditions for the rise to power of, of, of a populist strongman, in this case, uh, Hugo Chavez. The fact that he himself uh, acknowledges this and that he has uh, very courageously apologized publicly for this, I think is, 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 is very interesting and very stirring, emotionally very stirring. Uh, so uh, soap operas are, are, are very closely linked to our, our, our I guess, ethos or our, our way of uh, approaching society uh, through the mind, uh, through perception. Uh, and uh, if we are ever going to rid ourselves, uh, something I, I believe very profoundly, uh, of uh, the populist uh, tradition, uh, we will have to use all methods, including soap operas. Uh, I have yet to see in Latin America a libertarian soap opera, but the day I see one, I will, I will know that Latin America is headed in the right direction. We have to, we have to make a, 
So Barbara with I am Rand for yes. example. <laughs> Alvaro, do you want to comment on, on Carlos Alberto's book? Well, I I, uh, uh, I, I think this is a book that uh, somebody needed to write. It's a, it's a wonderful thing that he has written this book. Uh, of course, he's he's not the first person to say that that uh, uh, Latin America is part of the West, but uh, he's probably the first writer in Latin America in, in modern times um, to have uh, set about uh, proving this uh, in a in a book that explores many areas of, of of our culture and tries to trace back the roots of those different manifestations of our culture. Um, and uh, I think it does so in a, in a very persuasive way uh, and also in a, in a way that, that is not uh, excessively academic, which I think is very important because, uh, of course, uh, the, the, the more people a book like this is able to reach, uh, the, the, the more influence it will have in terms of uh, changing the mindset, which I think is where change really, really begins. Maybe I, I, could, I could just point out two or three, I think, basic um, Ideas that the book uh, tries to uh, postulate, and I think does so very persuasively. Uh, I, I also want to uh, emphasize how important this book is, not just for Latin Americans, but for Americans and, and Europeans, um, because Americans and Europeans are part of the problem of how Latin America perceives itself. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Latin America has been, uh, in, in many ways, uh, a, a child of, of uh, 15th and 16th century utopian European ideas. And uh, Europeans and Americans have tended to uh, see Latin America as, a, as a, an exotic place where uh, their uh, innermost uh, desires and, and dreams and uh, uh, also phobias and, and, uh, and the like uh, could be uh, you know, put in place and explored and... and uh, and, and realized with no limits, with no uh, uh, punishment in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a way that could uh, never be possible in their own countries. And of course, this has created, uh, perhaps artistically, it's been very fertile, very, very uh, created a, a, a lot of masterpieces, but politically, I think, and economically, I think it's been uh, uh, devastating. So I think this is important. It's important for uh, Europeans and Americans to understand that Latin America is part of the West. It's part of the Western uh, uh, tradition. And, and uh, insofar as uh, that is the case, what happens in Latin America uh, is, is, is also part of what happens to them. Um, one, I think, uh, very interesting aspect of, of, of this is the idea that, that those who are questioning the Western uh, roots of, of Latin America um, uh, are doing so in the most Western tradition possible, and they're using the most Western tools possible, uh, sometimes consciously uh, and very hypocri hypocritically, sometimes without even realizing that that's the case. To begin with, there's nothing more Western than the critical tradition. It's the only civilization in the history of mankind that thrived on criticism on the idea of, of, of criticism as, as uh, something that galvanizes change, something that, that uh, creates the conditions for change. It's the only society that's been able to look at itself uh, with profoundly critical eyes and to make something of that dynamic. Uh, so the fact that 
many of these regimes and intellectuals and politicians uh, in, in, in many countries in Latin America, of course, particularly in Venezuela, Bolivia, Nicaragua, uh, Ecuador today, etc., are, are uh, exercising uh, a, a frontal and, and powerful criticism of uh, the West and particularly liberal democracy and uh, the market economy and globalization um, is proof in and of itself that uh, we are profoundly Western because they're exercising uh, or, or they're engaging in a profoundly Western exercise, uh, which is, which is uh, a criticism. Of course, it's the wrong kind of criticism, and it's, 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 it's going and taking us in the wrong direction. But what they're doing is profoundly Western. Uh, I mean, they would not be doing what they're doing uh, in terms of criticizing liberal democracy and questioning uh, the market economy and going uh, against globalization if the Greeks had not been an inquisitive bunch. Uh, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing if, if, if Thomas Aquinas had not been so profoundly uh, uh, and revolutionarily uh, critically revolutionary uh, in questioning uh, uh, revelation in theology and moving it toward reason. Uh, Morales and Chavez would not be doing what they're doing now uh, if Voltaire and the Enlightenment had not taken such a, a, a disturbing look at the uh, powers that, that be, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So they're doing something profoundly Western. It's also interesting that the tools with which they're questioning liberal democracy and the republican institutions and, and the market economy and liberty in, in general uh, are also profoundly, uh, pr profoundly Western. Uh, for instance, uh, and to go for a second beyond the realm of, of politics, when you look at art, uh, that's something that, that uh, indigenistas, who, who there's no exact translation in English, but it's kind of ethnic-based politics. Uh, there's something that they, they, they like to do very much, which is um, to use uh, certain literary movements in Latin American history or, or artistic schools, schools of art, uh, and to try and, and, and uh, present them as somehow a uh, response to or against uh, the Western tradition. And they particularly focus on the Cusco school, uh, named after Cusco, of course, being, being uh, the city uh, in, in, in Peru, that was the uh, seat of power for, for a very long time um, uh, for uh, pre-Columbian regimes, and particularly the Incas. Um, they tend to see this, this school, which thrived uh, in colonial times in, 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 uh, in, in Peru, as, as an expression of indigenismo, and they oppose it to the Western tradition. And the school of, of or the Cusco school is profoundly Western. First of all, it was born within the Roman Catholic Church. It's, it's an expression of Roman Catholicism at the time. Of course, a very interesting expression. It's a variation. It's a, it's a critical expression. Uh, uh, but but it, that's what the matrix is. That's where it came from. Uh, it's profoundly Western. Not only its content and its subject matter is profoundly Western, its style is profoundly Western. Uh, books have been, yeah, books have been written about uh, how uh, Italian Renaissance prints and Flemish uh, painters profoundly influenced the, the Cusco school. Um, and, and so that connection is, is there. Uh, and they don't realize it. Maybe they realize it and, and they're just trying to confuse us. Um, uh, how about the, the political response to the Western tradition? That uh, is also profoundly Western. Uh, populism. Uh, if populism is Latin America's um, way to, to um, 
combat our Western tradition, uh, it's, it's profoundly stupid because populism is profoundly Western. Uh, of course, the leading countries of the West overcame their populist tradition or mostly overcame the populist uh, tradition. So that represents, in our case, uh, a, a pretty ancient phase of Western civilization, but it's still profoundly Western. Uh, Carlos Sabino, who's a good friend of all of us, uh, and a, a great thinker, has written a, a, a few books on populism, but one in particular, which, which uh, I think is called uh, Populismo, where he traces the roots of populism back to two or three different places, but all very interesting. One of them is Russia in the 1860s. Uh, a, a intellectual movement called Narodnik, uh, a group of intellectuals who took Marxism, who took the one of the tenets of, of Marxism, the idea that uh, socialism was was uh, the, the sort of latest stage in an evolution that had to go through capitalism, and try to turn it around. And, and they said, well, Russia is a backward country, so we're not yet a, a modern capitalist society, but why don't we just... Uh, skip that phase and go straight to socialism. And, and that whole movement, Narodnik, was, was all about that. Um, and it was, it was profoundly populist in its, in its outlook. And it was, although it, it, it was born in Russia, it took its ideas, its basic tenets, uh, from Marxist thought, from something that was profoundly Western. Um, in the United States, in the 19th century, there was a, a, a movement uh, it was. It was not in that case intellectual. It was. It had more to do with agrarian cooperatives <clears throat> that uh, uh, came into into being after the Civil War, particularly in, in the Midwest and and I guess also in the South. And and these people um, were very mistrustful of of uh, the market economy. They were very mistrustful of free trade, and they postulated inflation as a way to spur production. And uh, from that matrix uh, sprang a whole political movement that eventually became the People's Party. And that was, Sabino says, and I, I have every reason to believe him, that was the first populist party ever uh, in, the, in the 19th century in the United States of America. Um, and then, of course, uh, there are, uh, I mean, the, the populist idea and the populist movement evolved and, and, and went through different phases until, of course, it uh, reemerged in Latin America uh, with uh, people like Perón and, and Vargas in, 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 in Brazil, et cetera, et cetera. But again, the, what, what I'm trying to get at here is that the tools with which we're trying to combat our Western legacy and tradition are profoundly Western. It's just that they express a, a phase in Western evolution that has long been overcome in the leading countries of, of, of the world. So it's, a, it's an entirely futile exercise. Thanks very much, Alvaro. Let's take some, some questions now from, from the audience. And when you, uh, uh, when you get the microphone, uh, state your name and your affiliation. We'll start out uh, right here, please. Right there. name is Stephen Shore. I'm with the PBGC. The last time I looked at a map of Latin America, Brazil was a very large part of it. And Brazil's heritage, of course, is Portuguese. So do you see the Portuguese legacy as fundamentally the same as the Spanish legacy? Or uh, uh, how does Brazil fit into Latin America? Well, uh, they were both the same country in the uh, 17th century. 
They were part, Brazil was, uh, I mean, Portu, Portugal was part of the, of the kingdom of Spain until they uh, separate. But there is a big difference between both uh, countries. In first place, because uh, after the Napoleon Wars, the king of Portugal went to Brazil and started uh, monarchy in, in Brazil that gave that country a different, uh, absolutely different uh, way to behave uh, in the political field. Brazil didn't have any big uh, civil wars. It was not divided. This is the reason why it's a country as big as the United States because it didn't divide in, in different uh, provinces or, or different uh, states. And somehow, politically, the, they probably behave in a more civilized way, but economically, it's the same disaster. <laughs> <laughs> There's no big difference. Uh, it's a country with... Uh, there's five Latin American countries that has a bigger PIB, uh, GDP. GDP, GDP per capita than, than Brazil. And the... Uh, in somehow um, is uh, the, the, the scientific and technical development of Brazil is as frustrating as uh, the rest of uh, Latin America. Probably a little less right now, but that idea that uh, Brazil could become the uh, the locomotora, uh, the, the, uh, the, the engine, the engine of the uh, Hispanic, uh, I think is uh, wishful thinking. Right now. I don't know in the future, but right now I think Washington is uh, playing with that idea, but uh, I don't believe that this will happen. The question here. Uh, thank you, Frank Fletcher, STS. I wanted to uh, ask your thoughts on another tradition in Latin America that's drawn from the colonial period, which stands in sharp contrast to the national period. And I'm I'm thinking of my idea comes from the Florida International University historian Mark Schumann, who tried to impart to us um, the idea that during the Spanish colonial epoch period, elites, for example, competed for fueros, special privileges, and when they had disputes, they didn't take guns and start killing each other. Spain really didn't have a strong military presence at all. They had an administrative presence that represented the Spanish crown, which was seen as legitimate, which mediated and brokered disputes. That was very different from what we know happened in the national period, and he attributes that largely to the fact that when the authority of the Spanish crown was delegitimized by the invasion of Spain by Napoleon, that um, the elites began to compete for power and there was no one legitimate to resolve them, so they had to hire essentially, well, this is my terminology, thugs, armed people, 
and those people, the, the, the army stayed in power or tried to. So what, what do you think of this? I mean, there's this other tradition that was more civil, civic, or to use Carlos Alberto Montaner's term, civilized. Sure. Um, this is a really, really important point. Um, except that those fueros, and, and they were really important in, 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 in Spain's history, uh, date back to, to early medieval times, so, in other words, before the conquest. So th- this did not take place during colonial times. They, it had taken place long before it. And yes, it was a very important tradition that, that uh, unfortunately was, was squashed once uh, Spain became a unified monarchy. And, and the Counter-Reformation be, became the, the, the dominating ethos. But yes, before that time, the, the Fueros were a really important liberal tradition, if I can call it that. Uh, these were small villages uh, spread out throughout, throughout the Iberian Peninsula that fought back against the, the monarchy, whichever regional monarchy it happened to be at the time, because, of course, Spain was, was divided into different um, uh, regions and, and each one had its own uh, monarchy. And, uh, you know, that tension, that dynamic, uh, created certain space for freedom. And they were called fueros. They were certain types of, of, of political rights that villages and, and, and small towns acquired through that uh, resistance against central authority. Uh, that is the reason why my email uh, address is Fuero Libre, by the way. Um, uh, the Fueros are, are a wonder for anybody who has uh, uh, you know, a, a passion for liberty and, and wants Latin America to be a, a, a uh, liberal society. Uh, the, the Fueros uh, from Spain are, are, are one of those uh, forgotten traditions that I think we need to draw from. Uh, there are many others, uh, and all of them, I think, loosely connected, at least loosely connected. Maybe they're connected in more fundamental ways as well. Another one is the School, school of Salamanca, of course, which we always tend to forget when we think about the uh, uh, liberal or, 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 or uh, word liberal in the United States has such terrible connotations that I, I don't know whether to use it, but uh, the, the liberal tradition. Uh, the, the School of Salamanca uh, includes some, some profoundly uh, original thinkers um, who contributed uh, to many of the ideas that, that uh, libertarians and, and, and liberals, in the right sense of the word, um, made their own, um, whether it be ideas on economy, on uh, sovereignty, on uh, who should govern, uh, on um, uh, whether magnicide is, is justified against a, a, an autocrat, uh, etc. So yes, there is this, 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 this tradition that people have tended to forget, and which I, I think uh, we in Latin America need to rescue uh, to, to, to show that these ideas are not foreign to, to the culture that we come from. Right here. Uh, thank you, Ernie Prieg, Manufacturers Alliance, and uh, I have a follow-up question about Peru to Mr. Vargas Llosa, because I see Peru as a as an important, critical country today in in Western culture and values and and, and what's happening. Also, it's a an, an important country where this hybrid between indigenous culture and Western culture has been a struggle. And I should uh, and my question is about whether things have changed recently, because I did li- I spent three years in Peru, as Ian may know. Uh, when Aya de la Torre, Victor Raul, was still alive and the Apriesta movement was billed and structured the program as being indigenous and distinct from the West. And you had the first indigenous 
president, Velasco, and you had the beginnings of the Sendero Luminoso, which intellectual roots in the countryside, Ayacucho, were to a large extent anti-Western. Uh, but that seems to have changed so much. Uh, the, Victor Raul's most influential and most able, young, at that time tall, very thin uh, disciple was Alan Garcia. Uh, and yet when, uh, <laughs> in his second presidency, almost everything he says or does has to make Victor Raul turn over in his grave. So my question is, have things fundamentally changed from my assessment 20, 30 years ago that Peru was very much hybrid, if anything, uh, very largely in a different anti-Western cultural uh, setting? Uh, a final last thing, that was a very distinguished Western voice that I read every week in Las Caretas, whose family name also was uh, Vargas Llosa. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I think Carlos Alberto is right when he, he uh, says that Peru is, is, is one of the few countries in Latin America today that gives us, uh, that, that give us reasons for hope. Uh, and it's uh, in, in some ways an even more interesting example than, than Chile, which is the one that we always, uh, of course, point to uh, when trying to defend uh, these ideas uh, in, in the region. It's more interesting in the sense that it has... Um, uh, yes, a, a much more uh, significant indigenous background. Uh, it has, uh, of course, historical uh, significance in the sense that it was it was uh, a vice royalty, unlike Chile. Uh, it's also a country that's gone through such traumas uh, for for uh, such a long time. Um, uh, that uh, you know the, the, the notion that uh, change is possible, that reform um, is possible, uh, is is uh, one that is somehow validated there. I think in much more meaningful ways than than in a country like Chile, which doesn't mean I don't value the Chilean example. I value it so much that I, I use it all the time, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful country. But I think these ideas need more validation than Chile. And, and the fact that Peru is headed in the right direction could be profoundly significant uh, in that particular respect. Uh, yes, I mean, in the last, I would say in the last 20 years, uh, there's been a, a, a huge change. Um, when I was in uh, a much younger person, uh, Peru was a country that was beyond hope. I mean, I, my entire generation uh, thought of Peru as, as, as a country uh, which was, uh, I mean, where, where nothing uh, was possible, where change was not possible, where peaceful coexistence was not possible, uh, where modernity was not possible, uh, where liberal democracy was, was, was impossible. Um, and that's why so many people of my generation, of all you know, walks of life and, 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 and uh, social strata, migrated. Uh, to Spain, to other European countries, to this country, even to other Latin American countries. You, you find a lot of Peruvians in Venezuela. You have find a lot of Peruvians in, in Argentina, uh, some as well in, 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 in Brazil. And in the course of, of, of a couple of decades, uh, there's been a, a, a fantastic turnaround, uh, so much so that the person who governs Peru today has gone from being the archetypical uh, populist, the, the Chavez of the 1980s, uh, to, to become one of the leading figures uh, of, 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 I guess, civilized government in, in, in Latin America today. Uh, why did that happen? Well, that, that maybe we need to hold another event for that. That's, that's a, it's a long story. But I think essentially um, the right people express the right ideas at the right time. Uh, 
in the 1980s, Peru went through a period of, of, of big political convulsion, economic hopelessness, and violence. And all of that, and, and hyperinflation, of course, which, which is, uh, I think it was a very important part of the equation. All of those things put together created the conditions for utter desperation on the part of the people. And those conditions can be, of course, uh, fatal for, 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 for countries in general. But there's one positive thing about that kind of environment, and it's uh, the fact that people are willing to experiment with almost anything. They're so desperate that uh, whoever comes along with, with a totally revolutionary idea is going to find fertile ground for that idea. Uh, the fact that the right ideas uh, were out there being expressed and, and that there were movements and currents of people and intellectuals and, and different groups uh, fighting for those ideas at that particular time, uh, I think was, was just very fortunate. Um, I, I, I was uh, personally involved with all of that. I was part of a movement called Movimiento Libertad, which competed in, in the elections in 1990, and I, I lived through that period very intensely, uh, thinking that, that uh, although Peru had sort of reached bottom, it had also reached a, a condition in which people were willing to experiment with, with change. Change began to happen. It began to take root. It began to generate results, and that created the conditions for politicians who had been uh, part of the populist uh, legacy to change simply because, I guess, out of, out of an instinct for self-preservation. I mean, Alan Garcia could not have won the 2006 elections uh, if he had not uh, changed because uh, enough Peruvians had reasons to support uh, the free market, liberal, democratic uh, uh, system um, that uh, he would be guaranteed to stay out of power if he did not change. Uh, so it, it, it's a, you know, a, a very fascinating process. S uh, that said, uh, the battle is not won. I mean, not by a long shot. It's, it's still uh, a very complicated scenario. There are still regions of Peru, particularly in the Andean South, um, in which things are moving much more slowly. Uh, there are uh, regional movements and groups that are trying to push in the other direction, and they have funding from Venezuela and a lot of support from the, the populist uh, coalition in, in Latin America. Um, and, and these battles, of, of course, are never totally won. Uh, it's a permanent tension. It's a permanent s struggle. But the country is finally headed in the right direction, and I think that should give hope to a lot of Latin Americans. All of this is a way of saying, of course, isn't it, Alvaro, that there is actual cultural change going on in Peru. It's not just an economic uh, set of reforms that seem to, to be working. And I'm, for some of you who don't know, I'm also uh, Peruvian. In fact, I used to say that I was the most important Peruvian libertarian in Washington until Alvaro moved to, to town. That <laughs> screwed everything up. Uh, but, I mean, those of us who've been paying attention uh, to, to Peru closely since our very first days have noticed a big, a noticeable cultural change that I would, uh, especially along the coast and some parts of Peru that I would describe as the emergence of uh, essentially bourgeois values uh, among this emerging middle class, which actually I think is one of the big unexamined uh, phenomenons in Latin America uh, right now. Let's take uh, another question. We'll take a question in the back uh, right there, this gentleman. 
Thank you. My name is Richard Ranger. I'm with API, but I'm here by myself. Uh, thank you both for a fascinating discussion. And if I may, to Mr. Vargas Llosa, if I may convey my thanks to your father through you for conversation in the cathedral. It is marked to take in case of fire in, in my house. So, uh, um, But that brings me to the question. Uh, there are ways to express the connectivity of Latin America with Western culture through literature. Are there writers or are there works that either of you believe sort of speak on behalf of the Western roots of the Latin American tradition to Latin American readers and to other readers in the world? Of course. Uh, I mean, Latin American uh, writers are always been fascinated by Europeans, uh, great Europeans writers, and then by American writers. And uh, probably a writer like Faulkner, for example, has more influence in Latin America than in any other part of the world besides the uh, United States. And uh, if you go to painting, it's more or less the same thing. Painters are always trying to be part of this uh, big uh, Western uh, movements of, uh, of, of painters and sculptures and, and, and artists. This is... Um, I remember when I, when I wrote that chapter on the book, I was surprised by how practically all the important writers in in Latin America were absolutely behind these uh, European movements um, of uh, like uh, surrealismo at what point or or existentialismo in, in, in other other moment of, of, of history in in philosophy or in literature or I mean the most interesting thing is that usually with the exception of Argentinians, they were always looking for influence outside outside their own countries, not inside. They were looking for France, they were looking for England, eventually from influence by the Americans, but practically never they try to enrich themselves with their own uh, literature tradition, li literary tradition, with the exception of Argentinians. Argentinians start at the probably at the end of the 19th century. Literary movements that were strong enough that they support themselves and they give some kind of a national uh, school of uh, of thinking and a school of uh, of writing that uh, that were were strong enough to maintain a, a tradition, but besides their Argentina, probably Mexico, in a, at certain points, the rest of uh, Latin America were under the influence of the, which is something that I think is very good. It's not, nothing against that. I mean, I'm, I, I I don't see the the point of being 
uh, nationalistic in, in that sense. If there is a good influence in Dostoyevsky or in Freud or in, or in uh, whatever, let's, let's get that influence. I mean, don't try, don't try to be nationalistic in that sense. Yeah, and, and if I may add something, because Ian was asking a very interesting question a moment ago, uh, which was why uh, were Latin Americans so creative and original uh, when writing novels and, and uh, painting and, and uh, expressing themselves uh, artistically, uh, and, and of course so um, uh, uncreative uh, uh, in, in other domains, politics and economics and so on. And uh, I've heard some some writers uh, say that, and I think this is this is a, a, a quite a persuasive argument that it probably has to do with the freedom they had to express themselves. Um, and uh, by freedom, I mean the the liberty to draw from other experiences and to look beyond their national boundaries. Uh, because politicians who governed those countries had such utter contempt for art, uh, they let them do. They, they neglected to legislate and regulate that area of, of, of life. And therefore, those creators were free to trade, to trade intellectually, to trade spiritually, to, 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 to trade simply with the rest of the world in terms of what experiences and what manifestations, cultural manifestations, uh, they, 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 they wanted to have access to and to be inspired by and to draw from. And because that free exchange took place in that very limited uh, domain, uh, literature and, and, and painting and other artistic uh, expressions were able, to, were able to thrive in ways that politics and economics and other areas were, were not. And I, I think that's a, a, a very interesting idea. Uh, in fact, Mario Vargas Llosa made uh, very much that point, or uh, similar point here once uh, in, this, in this auditorium, uh, essentially saying that uh, when Latin Americans are able to compete and draw from the best of the world, they succeed, as in the arts, or including in sports, where everybody does actually follow the rules of soccer, and then when you follow it on an even playing field, you can have uh, success, as uh, many Latin American countries and players have shown. I'll take a question from up, up front here. Thank you. Norman Bailey. I want to follow up on a comment that Mr. Vargas Llosa made. But before that, I want to correct a false impression given by a little interchange between us, Montaner and, and Ian. Uh, Brazil has by far the largest GDP of any country in Latin America. What I think you meant to say is that uh, five countries of Latin America have a higher per capita per GDP capita, capita, than, than Brazil. But that's not what was said, so no, no, okay. I want to okay. uh, make that clear. Um, Mr. Vargas Llosa said that the battle is far from won in Peru. And everybody's all thrilled now about Chile. Uh, everybody was all thrilled ex until a few days ago about Uruguay as being one of the most civilized, quote-unquote, countries in Latin America. Uh, Ur the Uruguayans have just elected president a superannuated revolutionary uh, who was uh, head, a leader of the Tupamaro movement, tup which comes from Tupac Amaro, and that's some of the, uh, uh, which is very uh, Peruvian, uh, Peruvian history. Uh, and his first act, important act as uh, as um, president-elect, 
was to uh, embrace and talk for at length and talk, talk about how he's going to uh, be uh, improve ties and so on with Hugo Chavez. Uh, so I think that we've got to be extremely careful uh, celebrating victories of what I I will call our side in Latin America, because even in a country like Uruguay, uh, it's fragile. That's a really good point that, that you make. Um, uh, Mariano Grondona, who's a, an Argentinian writer, has a very interesting book about culture. Um, uh, I forget the title now, but, but it's, a, it's a fairly recent book, and you can easily look it up on, on, on the web and, and order it through Amazon and whatever. And it's, he makes a point there about Argentina and the way it and he, he coins a term, which in Spanish is des desarrollo, which uh, could be translated as, as not un, undeveloped itself, but de-developed itself. Uh, it, it went from being a developed country in the late 19th century, early 20th century, to being an un, undeveloped country in the 20th century, mid-20th century onward. And, and he writes about how a country can easily move uh, if certain conditions are given uh, from a state of development to a state of undevelopment or underdevelopment. And, uh, well, what, what you said uh, in, in many ways uh, points to the same idea. Uh, and not only in Latin America, I would say. I mean, I've just come from Spain, a country with which I have a very close connection. Uh, I hold a Spanish passport as well. And uh, Spain is a country that is desdesarrollándose uh, fast. Uh, and, and unless something happens, uh, 30, 40 years from now, Spain could really be, uh, again, an underdeveloped country. It's, it's, it's so, yeah. So, yeah, that battle is never won. It's never won, but Alberto, do you think that some countries in Latin America have reached an inflection point, a threshold, uh, at which point it is more difficult for uh, p populism to gain sway? Yes, I mean, uh, yeah, cl clearly that's the case in Chile. Uh, Ominami, who is the populist candidate in, in, in Chile, and he's a mild kind of populist compared to some of the real Latin American populists, but let's say he's the populist candidate there, would have won uh, already uh, if, if uh, you know, he, by, meaning, by that I mean he would be ahead in the polls by a lot, by a lot if he had uh, been a candidate in a, in a, in a, in a different country. Uh, again, in Peru in 2006, uh, probably Humala, uh, who came very close to winning. Humala was, was a, a populist candidate in Peru, supported by Chavez, and he was the Peruvian uh, answer to Chavez. And he would have probably won. Uh, he came this close, but he would have won uh, if, if Peru had not uh, gone through this, 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 this evolution in the last uh, 20 years. So, so, and, and, and clearly, uh, even in countries like Uruguay, with all the mistakes that they're making, there, there's, there, there's a tradition of rule of law there that I think imposes certain limitations on populists, uh, including Mujica, whose discourse is, is much less confrontational and much less, um, uh, I, I, I would say, uh, totalitarian than that of somebody like Chavez. Uh, you know, whether he will try to uh, go down that path uh, eventually, we don't know. But, but the fact that he thinks uh, a certain discourse has to be uh, maintained uh, probably tells you that, that Uruguayan society uh, imposes a, a, a certain number of limitations on, uh, on, on, on its leaders. So, so yes, I mean, some countries have, have clearly uh, moved ahead. We have time for at least one more question, and we'll take it in the back there, please.
My name is Fernando Batista. I actually um, studied political philosophy was a, with a well-known libertarian named John Hospers, who ran for president of the United States of America in the 80s. And um, I have a question uh, which relates a little bit to the, 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 um, the uh, issue of, of Mexico and Argentina in the 90s when it looked like things were going to evolve very well. In fact, there was talk about Mexico uh, graduating in a few years from uh, a, a, a being considered a country in development to a developed country. And suddenly, the, uh, the both of the parties in power in those countries under the leadership of Carlos Menem in one case and the uh, Mexican president in the other case um, fell apart because of the issue of corruption. And I'd like to know where um, the roots of that corruption come from, if you have an answer. <clears throat> well, corruption in both countries is a very old tradition that goes uh, even before the Mexican Revolution, in the case of Mexico. During the, the times of Santa Ana, there was a lot of corruption. During the times of Porfirio Diaz, there was a lot of, of corruption. Why the uh, reform failed in, during Carlos Salinas de Hortari in the, in the 90s. Well, uh, in truth, it was very uh, corrupt uh, transformation of the, of the economy in one hand. In the other, after 70 years of, of the PRI, of the government of the PRI, the roots of the of the populismo, but more, more than that, the roots of, uh, how you said, um, the relation, the corrupt relation between power and, and the population and the society. The PRI has all the votes, the, basically the, the, the votes, the 50% of the, of the votes comes from the poor people. The people that they, with their government, with the type of government they have, they maintain in poverty. But at the same time, they give some kind of uh, assistencialism. I don't know how to say it in English. Welfare. welfare. With uh, some kind of, uh, of, of uh, third-rate welfare, they maintain that uh, people as their clients, political clients, Se usa esa expresión en inglés, clientelismo, political clients, political clients. And that's a very difficult uh, to, to, to break with, uh, with, that, uh, with that tradition. In the case of Argentina, it's more, more or less the same thing. But reform is possible. Chile made a reform. Peru made a, a, a reform. And... Uh, if there will be a second chance for Mexico, I, I think it will be a second chance for Mexico and for for, for Argentina. But it, may, it probably will take uh, uh, some time. It was really frustrating for everyone around the world to see what happened. In, because in the 90s, we all believed that Mexico and Argentina became the uh, first... Uh, if not the first 
class countries, at least the mentality that they had, the mentality. Finally, the the uh, the elite that ruled the country has the 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 right mentality for for made transformation, but evidently they they didn't. It was uh, I don't know if Alvaro has a better explanation of. Uh, in in many ways. Both Menem in Argentina and Salinas in in in, in Mexico were populists. Uh, they were they were, I guess, a, a, a libertarian populist. I could call them. They were a contradiction in terms. Um, it's a, I always remind people when when they talk about the 1990s in Argentina that under Menem, the government grew in size by a hundred percent. The economy grew by forty percent. The size of the state. The size of the government grew by 100%, uh, two and a half times, uh, the rate of growth of the economy. Uh, in, the ca- in the case of Carlos Salinas, uh, Carlos Alberto has explained uh, the, the kind of system that the, the PRI was. Um, Salinas was operating within that system. He was in many ways allowing for all the obvious differences, trying to do with Mexico what Gorbachev tried to do with the Soviet Union. He was trying to rescue the system by reforming the system, and that was uh, impossible. Either you, you, you rescued the system, in other words, you preserved it, uh, or you destroyed it. Well, the, the, I think uh, the, the challenge for uh, the PRI was, was pretty much the same. Uh, and, and the idea that you could, you could create a, a, a free society out of a corporatist uh, type of systems such as the pre uh, was was an impossibility, and, and so that's why I think that that uh, government became such a disaster. The roots of corruption were in the type of system that the pre was. It was a corporatist system. It was an authoritarian system. It was profoundly populist in its methods, in its customs, in its legacy. Uh, so yes, I mean some valuable reforms were undertaken within the system, and, and, and you know opening up the economy is always a good thing, even within a corrupt system. But uh, ultimately, the reform of the system is what should have taken place and didn't. And, and uh, it's not even taking place now under a democratic government, which is one of the reasons why Mexico is still struggling, I think. So the 90s in Latin America were a very messy uh, time. But I think there is no doubt that Latin America today is a vastly better place, and it actually has progressed precisely because of the good reforms that actually were introduced and even in the face of the grave policy errors uh, that had nothing to do with market reforms that were introduced at the same time, which led to the crises and the problems that we all know about, even in the face of that push and pull between liberalism and the legacy of of statism, which is uh, such a long tradition in, in Latin America, we see progress, and I guess the the work of those of us who are trying to promote uh, the liberal idea and the free society is to underline that progress and to continue to to push in that direction. Thanks very much for all of you for coming, and please help me uh, thank both of our great speakers today. Thank you.